And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 19 young men traveled to the United States, some on tourist visas, others on student visas, and stay here for a protracted period of time, many of whom exceed their 90 days, and yet it seems to go entirely unnoticed. They set up camp and begin taking classes in commercial airline pilot training. But they're very specific in telling the instructor they're not interested in learning how to take the plane off the ground or land the plane, just how to fly the plane once it gets in the air. On a single morning, one Tuesday back in 2001, they all board flights sitting in the first-class section of a number of major airliners in four strategic communities around the United States. They engage in conversation in Arabic, and yet no one seems to notice. And, of course, by 8 o'clock that morning on the East Coast, the first commercial airliner had been flown into the World Trade Center, and the world as we know it changed and changed drastically. It might be argued that in the days and weeks and months preceding September the 11th of 2001, that it should have been obvious, that we should have known that something was going on, because after all, so many of their activities were hidden in plain sight. That not only, I think, is a great description of the events that led up to the tragedy that we know now as 9-11, but then to the title of a new book that helps to explain in great detail from a news and historical slash biblical perspective what else has been hidden in plain sight before the church, and that is the signpost of the coming of the Antichrist. Joining me today in studio is the author of this new book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Mark Davidson. Mark, great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me on your program, Greg. I guess it can be fairly reasonably argued that much of what led up to 9-11, for those that could have been paying attention, maybe arguably should have been paying attention. We just kind of seemed to ignore. We ignored it until it was too late. Is the same thing true post 9-11 from a prophetic standpoint of what's been going on in the world stage and in history that a lot of these events unfolding in light of biblical prophecy is largely being ignored by the church? I believe so. Uh, I think it's because we're looking in the wrong places. We're looking for something to come out of Europe or Rome. And we look at the Middle East and we say, well, there's a bunch of chaos. There's a bunch of events going on. And we think perhaps that, uh, yeah, it, it may support prophecy, but there's nothing specific. And the specific things we may be looking for in Europe just aren't happening. And so we just see all these events before us. Take us back. Uh, many of us can recall back to a time in the late 1970s, for example, when there was a good percentage of Christians, many of whom were spurred on by the writings of people like Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, that felt fairly well convinced based on their interpretation of uh, Daniel 7 and 9, Ezekiel 38 and 9, that the, the hook, so to speak, would be put into the jaw of Gog and Magog and pulled down upon Israel uh, to launch what would be the last great battle, the Battle of Armageddon. And the interpretation at that time was, well, this clearly had to mean the Soviet Union. Well, as we know, in history, the Soviet Union has uh, since come and gone and been yes. splintered apart to and fro. Um, much of what we thought would transpire surely by the mid-1980s, certainly by the end of the, the decade, if not the millennium, if not ushered in by the change to the new millennium, all of this has come and gone. Now some folks are even pointing to uh, this year, December of this year, that maybe some secret mm -hmm. is hidden within the Mayan calendar that will tell us when it all comes to a conclusion. What yes. has changed? And, and what has perhaps been the failure of our understanding and application of 
Scripture and prophecy in specific, whether we're talking about Daniel or Ezekiel or even the book of Revelation, uh, that back then in the 1970s, we thought so sure we understood that now today, 30 years later, has been proven to be so wrong. Well, prior to the 1970s, for about 1,800 years, we've been going on the, mom- the momentum that the Antichrist was going to be coming out of a revived Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irenaeus and uh, um, Hippolytus, a uh, couple of the church fathers, first mentioned this, that that uh, the lion with wings in Daniel 7 was ba- ancient Babylon, and that the, the great terrible creature was Rome, and that the iron legs in the statue was Rome. And the city so built on seven hills, Rome. Mm-hmm. Well, they also failed to mention that potentially the Antichrist could have come out of San Francisco, because it's built on seven hills as well. As is Constantinople. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, 1,800 years of momentum that never really changed. And so now we see, we saw back in the 60s and 70s, the European community coming together. It had six members and then seven members. And then when Hal Lindsey's book came out, uh, I think we were just starting to uh, get into nine members. And then around, it was around 1980 or so, Greece joined, and we had ten. And so we thought, there's our ten toes, there's our ten horns coming out of the Roman, the old Roman Empire. And, uh, well, then by and by it became 15 and then 23. And I think now our last count is about 27. What we're looking at today and the differentiation between what we had historically understood to either be the former Soviet Union or Rome has changed and changed drastically. Yes. Give us some of the insights in terms of your awakening to the events that began unfolding in 2001 that, in fact, have their history going back to the fourth, fifth, and sixth centuries? Well, I had, like everybody else, saw 9-11 and uh, was just wondering what is going on. Um, Europe is basically, all you can hear there is crickets, and, and Russia was losing its power. And and uh, so I I sought the Lord in this, what's happening. And he caused me to run across some work by a gentleman by the name of Joel Richardson, who was sort of a starter, if you will, of, I believe, of the uh, Islamic Antichrist theory, that the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim, and that his empire is not Rome, but Islam. And he had had many experiences in the Middle East and and, uh, worked with Muslims and was familiar with Islamic writings and eschatology, and he was comparing Bible writings to to Islamic eschatology writings and saw a striking parallel, even with the false prophet between Islamic writings and Revelation. In the Bible. So heretofore, where we had thought largely this would come out of some sort of a political power, be it Moscow or Rome. Now yes. all of a sudden we find out, no, this isn't a great competitive political power, but rather a great competitive religious power. Yes. Elaborate. Yes. Two passages in the Bible that provided arguments for people that the uh, Antichrist was going to come from a Roman Empire that I realized had to be overcome. And I agreed with that because the the statue in uh, Daniel chapter 2, and the people who destroyed the temple toward the end of Daniel chapter 9 were both associated with the Antichrist. And it had to be reconciled to this new theory. And so, in in chapter 2, what struck me was in chapter 2, verse 40 of Daniel, it says that the empire of the iron legs must crush and pulverize the empires of the other metals, Babylon, Persia, Greece. And in studying history, I realized that Rome had never done that. Rome never conquered Persia. Rome only briefly occupied Babylon. And as far as Greece is concerned, yes, it thoroughly conquered Greece, but Greek culture and language completely took over Rome. So Rome never pulverized or crushed any of them. All it managed to crush was a single small Judean province down in the southeast corner of its empire. And as far as the people 
of the ruler who will come in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, the we had always thought that the people were Romans, because after all, it was Roman soldiers that destroyed the temple, set it on fire. But if you look a little closer in in at, at the historical sources, you'll see that the soldiers themselves, though wearing Roman uniforms and under a Roman banner, were Syrians and Egyptians and Arabians. The uh, historical sources tell us that when legions, especially in the eastern half of the empire, were based in a given province, they always recruited from the locals. And the the uh, four legions that attacked Jerusalem had all been based in Egypt or Syria or elsewhere. Uh, there's only one legion that may have had Europeans in it, and they would have been Bulgarians. But uh, by and large, it was Syrians and Egyptians and Arabians. Our conversation today with author Mark Davidson, a look at Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is author Mark Davidson. We're talking about his new book, just newly released and available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Mark's website at 4signpost.com. That's 4-F-O-U-R, signposts.com. The book, Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. And as you pointed out, Mark, post 9-11, you began taking a look at what was going on, not only in terms of biblical prophecy, but was un- what was unfolding in the headline news day by day. And as we began, I think, here in the West to get a better understanding of the Islamic worldview, that this is not just a peaceful religion hijacked by a handful of extremists, as we were told by then-President George Bush, but rather a conflicting worldview that is at every level at odds with biblical Christianity. Oh, sure, they will acknowledge Jesus of the Bible, but they see him simply as another prophet, not as the only Son of God, by only through him one might receive salvation. So it is truly an entirely different gospel that they preach, but not only a different gospel that Islam preaches, but then, too, a very different God that they serve. Yes. Elaborate. Well, uh, further on in the book, after I get past these arguments, I I look at Islam itself. I I thought, well, what is so special about Islam? And so I decided to look at their god, Allah. And Allah apparently comes from the words al-illah, which means the Lord or the God. And it means to anybody, you know, whatever your God is, and you say Allah, then that's who you're referring to. But Muhammad changed that. He says, no, Allah is someone specific. And it came from Hubal, the, an idol that was worshipped down there in Mecca. Uh, his tribe worshipped it. And he made it the god, the only god, and tossed out all the others. Um, let's see. Oh, the god Hubal, the idol Hubal, actually sounds phonetically quite a bit like the Hebrew Hubal. What we have in our English Bibles, Baal, and and Baal was the false god that most entangled Israel, and uh, Israel suffered the most punishment from God because of that particular false god. That um, I thought, well, maybe maybe there's some connection there, and it turns out that according to tradition, the idol Hubal came from Moab, and was brought down by uh, trade routes and so forth, and ended up down there at Mecca. 
So interestingly enough, then, we see the historical timeline that, again, weaves Mm -hmm. us back into connections with false gods that Mm -hmm. we see demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. But Mm -hmm. in this case, it is the leading false god. We we can cite many false world religions, but by far the most dominant world religion, by far the most dominant false world religion, Mm -hmm. whose teaching is, again, 100% contrarian to the teachings of scriptures we know from a uh, Judeo-Christian perspective, uh, would be Islam. Yes. Uh, Of all the false gods, like you have Molech, which means the king, uh, but you have Baal or Hubal, which means the Lord. And it is the only false god, the only worship of of a false god that tries to replace God himself. Uh, an idol that's called the Lord. It's like, oh no, only our God is called the Lord. So Allah is the God or the Lord to whomever is speaking or saying that name. If you hear that from a Muslim and he says Allah, you know you can believe that that God of his is not your God. It is not Jehovah God. It is not the Father of Jesus Christ. It's a totally different God. But if an Arab speaker who, or an Arabic speaker who is not Muslim, say a Christian that lives in Yemen, and he talks about Allah, then you can probably be assured that it, that is your God he's speaking of. In fact, I've seen in Arabic Bibles, they refer to Allah regularly, our God, as Allah. Because in the original Arabic, it does mean that. The only reason we, we associate it with being the Islamic God is because 99% of all Arabic speakers are Muslim. All right. With that said, walk us through, if you would, and we don't want to give away the entire plot of the book, obviously, but walk us through then some of the connection that you've seen then through Ezekiel and Daniel in specific, that begins to to write the story that helps us better understand that we're not really talking about Rome here, or even back in the day, the old Soviet empire, but rather more more accurately, and given what's going on in the current uh, historical timeline of, of the spread of Islam, how it is spreading, the manner in which it's spreading, that we're actually talking about the Antichrist coming up out of Islam. Walk us through that. All right. Well, I started by exploring, I I realized I had to go back and explore the entire Bible, particularly the prophetic books, including Revelation. I was looking for those passages that would speak of the times before the tribulation or times before uh, those events that we knew were the Antichrist, like the little horn coming up out of the beast with the ten horns, or the little horn that comes out of the four horns of the goat in Daniel chapter 8. So I, I caught these passages, and in looking at them in detail, it It actually says, toward the end of each vision, that these visions are applicable to the end time. They're not ancient times. They haven't been fulfilled yet. Um, In Daniel chapter 8, the angel tells Daniel twice that this vision pertains to the end time, the time of wrath, the time of the end. And in Daniel chapter 7, the beasts are still alive when Christ arrives. In fact, it even says, and they were allowed to live a little bit longer after Christ had arrived. So they're contemporaries of the end time. They're also contemporaries of each other. And then in looking through Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8 and realizing these events probably pertain to the end times and realizing that if the Antichrist was coming out of the Middle East in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, we're talking about the nations in that area and, and what happens to them prior to the Antichrist, the seven seals of Revelation chapter 6 began to appear. The first four seals which are the four horsemen, prior to the fifth seal, the fifth seal being the martyrs that died during the tribulation. The first four seals then could reasonably be considered to be prior to that, prior to the tribulation. 
And as it turns out, when you look at and you lay out all the pieces on the table of, of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7 and the ram and the goat of Daniel chapter 8 and the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6, that the four horsemen and the four beasts all come together to form the same four sets of events, that all three visions are talking about the same set of events, but from different perspectives. And that's the picture that gelled, that formed before right. my very eyes. Walk me through then, because you, you commit some time inside the pages of Hidden in Plain Sight to some very specific members of this cast of characters, uh, one of whom was Iran. Yes. And of course, we know Iran is capturing a great deal of attention in the headlines these days. We also know that Iran, more so than most nations, though certainly not exclusively, has, has very forcefully set herself up against Israel. Uh, yes. Ahmadinejad uh, specifically has talked about the desire for the destruction of Israel. Now, while yes. that's talked about amongst a lot of countries, not in as public a fashion and an abashed fashion the way Iran has. What is Iran's potential role in all of this? Well, there are four sets of events that uh, pretty much fall out of these visions. And Iran will be the dominant player of the second signpost, the second set of events. The first set of events have already come and gone, and all we saw was things going on in the Middle East and didn't realize their significance. But that's over, and so now we are seeing the beginning stage of the second sign, the second signpost, and yes, Iran will dominate it. What are some of those events of the first signpost, just to put this in the time order sure. for the benefit of our listeners? Sure. Well, we have the four, in the four beasts, we had the first beast, the lion with wings, and of the four horsemen, we had the rider on the white mm -hmm. horse. Those two symbols make up that first signpost. And what we are looking at is that those beasts represent modern nations of the Middle East, the modern inheritors of what we think of as the ancient empires. So what had been at one time, uh, for example, a Babylon uh, is now today, Iraq. Now Iraq. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the rider on the white horse was re received a crown. He received a Stephanos crown, not a diademe crown. He competed against others and won and became the leader of Iraq. And this rider on the white horse, he also kind of strutted around on his white horse, calling himself a hero. And that's what heroes do. They ride white horses. That's common in history as well as in the Bible. And in, um, then he was also uh, had a bow. And that bow is the capability to launch missiles, to launch you know, airborne projectiles. And uh, no mention is made of the arrows. Did he have arrows? Bible doesn't say. Doesn't say he did. Doesn't say he didn't. Said he had a bow. It just said he had a bow. And the Greek word for bow is toxon. The Romans picked that up to mean poison, but toxon actually originally meant archery. And poisons today can be chemical or biological or radiological, i.e., WMD. Mm -hmm. Our conversation today with author Mark Davidson, a look at Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more on this edition of Lifeline from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline with me today in studio is author Mark Davidson. We're talking about his new book, just newly released and available through Amazon.com. You can also get it through Mark's website at 4signpost.com. That's 4, F-O-U-R, signposts.com. The book, Hidden in Plain Sight, the signposts of the coming of the Antichrist revealed. You have walked us, Mark, through 
two of the four signposts. And I don't want to give the whole plot away, as we say, because there's so much more to come. But as we wrap a bow on your entire analysis of what you have seen, not only in Scripture, but what you see happening in headline news, what's the big warning for the church today? Some would argue that, well, this is all very well fascinating. Nobody really knows for sure. And so in the meanwhile, let's just kind of go about our business. But I would suspect as uh, in all cases where we're, we're given Scripture in advance, from a prophetic standpoint, yes. uh, whether it's heralding the coming of Jesus Christ or other events, that there is a warning that is to be heeded by the church. What's the warning here? Well, the warning is that the next event is going to be rather um, horrendous, I guess. is I don't know how else to put it. Uh, we saw, I mean, the Bible talks about, I believe, this, this leader of a modern Babylon, Iraq, Saddam Hussein, and then the the uh, unnatural things that are done to the beast, to the lion with wings, where he's forced to stand and his heart was replaced, that's Iraq. It was democratized. You take a country that has anciently known nothing but despots and, and tyranny and try to turn it into a, a democracy. How unnatural. And then the next step is Iran and the, our, the struggle within the government. But the fruit of that argument, when that when that's resolved and the lower horn becomes the taller horn, then becomes the next event, part of the second signpost, the main part, and that is a war in the Middle East, a major war in the Middle East, where Iran will run out to the west, all the way to the Mediterranean, to the north and to the south and to the Arabian Peninsula, and occupy, invade and occupy. And they are told, the bear is told, to go from country to country to country to country. And Ahmadinejad has said that his country, Iran, its mission is to spread the Islamic revolution, mm-hmm. to go from country to country to country. The ram is told to go north, south, and west. The bear is told to consume much flesh. And the red horseman is given a sword to allow men to slay one another. And Iran then will be able to occupy and control all of the oil feeds, oil fields within Iraq, Kuwait, the Gulf states, and Saudi Arabia – thereby potentially being able to shut off one quarter of the world's oil flow. And to make good on their promise to wipe Israel off the map? No, Israel will not be bothered or touched at this time. They may get pressured, but I do not believe at this time they are a target. So essentially then what we're talking about is Iran coming in and laying to waste the weaker, more vulnerable Islamic neighbors. Not so much laying to waste, causing their governments to change, forcing a different mode of rule. Some of this in response to the so-called uh, Arab Spring? No. Uh, actually, the Arab Spring pertains to signpost number three. Um, that's the, the Arab Spring is setting us up for signpost number three to happen. Um, what, what Iran is going to do is start a Shia revolution within all the various countries in the Middle East, east of Turkey and east of Syria and east of Egypt. So now, now the Shia are at war with the Sunni. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so the dethroning of Saddam Hussein, bringing him to justice, forcing about a change in power, which heretofore had been largely a secular government. We're now seeing the drive toward a religiously dominated government, which I think is going to be true again in, in Egypt and Libya as well. Previously secular, now swinging toward a religious or, or Islamized government. So where we would think we did a great thing in terms of turning the countries toward democracy, democracy, what we've really done is we have we have removed what had been one of the natural enemies 
yes. of Iran that Contain. to some degrees had contained Iran, that now all of a sudden that one roadblock to Iran has been taken out of the equation. Yes. The United States is completely responsible um, for the first signpost, the raising of the lion. You know, there's been this question of, well, why don't we see the United States in prophecy? Why doesn't the Bible mention anything of the United States in prophecy? And here I believe we see a case where the United States is not mentioned, but the actions of the United States are displayed quite plainly. Mm -hmm. It said the lion was forced to stand and its heart was replaced. Well, who did that forcing and who did that replacing? It was the United States. So we are effectively being used yes. to bring about fulfillment of prophecy. Yes, and I, I believe that when George Bush said he believed God told him to go into Iraq, I I believe it. Just perhaps for different reasons. For than different George reasons than we thought. Understood. Yes. Walk us through briefly, if you would, Mark, the fourth and perhaps most critical signpost. Well... At the end of the third signpost, the four nations will have completely taken over the Middle East and formed this great confederacy. Mm -hmm. It's a four-nation confederacy, not an alliance, a confederacy. The Bible shows this political unity, if you will. They see themselves as effectively, what, standing up against uh, the infidel like the United States? No, it's against Shia Islam. Okay. Now, I don't know what form of government they'll finally take, but it's going to be Sunni, you know. Um, but they will rule from Libya to Pakistan. You know, from the borders of western borders of Egypt to the eastern borders of Iran. It's going to be one great nation. But when that leader, that dynamic leader, the goat, the great horn of the goat, dies and breaks and the four nations come out from it, the four nations will break from the great nation. Susa will be the near the hub of the, where the four boundaries come together. Uh, Daniel said it would be in the direction of the four winds, so would be the four nations. When that occurs, the fourth signpost begins. The Antichrist will arise out of one of those four nations. Just like in Daniel chapter 8 with the goat, the small horn arises out of one of those four horns. It's going to arise out of one of those four nations. And it says that this goat, this goat's horn, the little horn, grows in power to the south and to the east. And if you can imagine, and I show it in an illustration in the book, the four nations, basically northwest, northeast, southwest, and southeast, for the power of the Antichrist to grow to the south and to the east pretty much means it has to start from the northwest quadrant. So that would be the Turkish, Syria, northwestern Iran area. And uh, he will arise as the ruler of that nation. There may be a lot of chaos. In fact, there may be one ruler after another. We won't know who it is. But when he reaches out to conquer the Egyptian nation and then the Arabian nation to unify them, I believe the Bible's telling us that he's the one. Now, his true nature as Antichrist won't be revealed yet. The Bible says it's not revealed until he actually is starting the, the tribulation, but he would be the uh, the candidate. The one question that whenever the discussion of eschatology comes up, folks want to immediately go to, and maybe it's a good point to wrap up our conversation on, and that is, as we take a look at the timeline of all of this, we know that there's been much wrestling over Daniel's 70 weeks. Given where you see us in the timeline, that mm -hmm. we have completed one of the four and are on the cusp of the, of, of the opening of the second, mm -hmm. with two more to remain... Uh, can you hazard a guess as to what kind of a timeline potentially we're talking about? Well, I uh, went to links in the book to uh, avoid that. Just that, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and leave it but, to me to ask you that question. Yeah, but, but, I mean, if you were to ask yourself, how long does it would it take Iran to invade the Middle East? How long would it take four nations to come back and form a great nation and break up and then one of the four pieces start to reunite the other four? All right, let how me long ask, would that take? Five, ten, twenty years? Let me answer the question for you then. Mm -hmm. In the same period of time that we saw the collapse of the Berlin Wall, 
the cessation of the Soviet Empire, the breaking up of that, the coming together of the European Union, uh, the the beginning of the dismantling of the empires of, of people like Saddam Hussein, all of that has taken place, in some cases, barely a generation. Right. I believe so, we have maybe a generation. So the, the short answer is, look up. Because your salvation draweth nigh, while no man knows the day or the hour, we know assuredly that he will come, and that uh, certainly while we are given the mandate to occupy until he returns. Uh, there's much that can be seen uh, where many of these stories are uh, concealed within Scripture. Uh, they are beginning to be revealed within the headline news. And I think that uh, Mark Davidson does an excellent job in kind of putting the pieces of the puzzle together, so to speak. It is certainly a new twist on what we heretofore had always understood to be uh, the involvement of Rome as being the seat of power from which emanates the Antichrist. But when you begin to clearly understand the role of Islam in the world stage of these two major differing worldviews between Judeo-Christendom on one hand and Islam on the other. Then all of a sudden, the pieces of the puzzle of Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation all begin to come together. It's a fascinating look at what heretofore has been considered to be hidden in plain sight. That, by the way, the title of the new book, and while published by Zulon Press, you can get it through Amazon.com, also available through Mark Davidson's website at 4signpost, that's F-O-U-R, 4signpost.com. I know we've just kind of scratched the surface today, Mark, but we appreciate you dropping by for a visit. And I think we all have a lot more homework to do with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and your book right in the middle. Thanks again for a great job. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. A look at Hidden in Plain Sight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was a number of years ago in China, deep in the interior, that we had a chance to meet a man whose name really isn't important, but the work that he did for the kingdom was critically important. China, as you may or may not be aware, has more than 80 minority people groups, and this one man concerned about his own people group and the fact that for the history of printed scripture, never had a Bible in their own language. God put the burden on his heart to translate God's word, Genesis to Revelation, into his own minority people group's language so that they, for themselves, could read and study God's words. He set about the business of translating. took him about three and a half years to accomplish this, and finally, having done so, went to the business of printing these Bibles. Eventually, the communist authorities found out, came in, arrested him, put him in jail for three years, collected up all the Bibles, and destroyed the original printing plates. When he was released from jail three years later, the burden was no less great than it was in the beginning, and he set about for the second time in a row to translate the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, from Genesis to Revelation, with a burning passion in his heart that his own people group had to be able to read God's word in their own language. Well, eventually the authorities caught on. This time came in collected up all the Bibles, destroyed those along with the printing plates, and sent him to jail for five years. When he was released from jail, you would have thought he had learned his lesson, that the authorities finally, after having spent the sum total of eight years in prison and receiving a number of beatings because he was translating God's word, contrary to Chinese communist official authorities' desire, you thought he would have learned his lesson, but no. The impression that he had on his heart for the necessity of his own people to read God's word in their own language in fact, had grown stronger. And so for the third time in a row, he set about the business of translating God's Word chapter by chapter, verse by verse, from Genesis to Revelation. 
You wouldn't think much of the man to meet him. In fact, the day we met him, he was dressed in dirty jeans, a soiled jacket, and flip-flops. While wouldn't leave much of an impression to you by the eye, the stature of that man in the kingdom was as great as any of the apostles. The importance of people groups, minorities, be able to read God's Word in their own language all over the globe has been the goal of Wycliffe Bible translators for many, many years now. And, of course, many of us know the story of, of Wycliffe. Joining me on the program today is Andy Ring. Andy is a translation advisor for Wycliffe Bible Translators. Andy, thanks so much for taking some time to be with us today. Craig, thanks for having me. You know, that story of the man that I met in China that time a number of years ago has left such an indelible impression on my heart at this very day. And I think a lot of us here in, in the Western world, um, we take for granted the ease that we have, not just in the access to God's Word, but even the fact that it's available to us to read in our own language at all. Mm. Yeah, I'm. Uh, that same story could be said over and over around the world, especially in West Africa, where I have worked for the last 30 years. We're seeing many people come forward with a, such a strong desire to translate the Bible into their own language. And uh, we in Wycliffe are, instead of just sending an individual to go to a remote area, we are now looking for those people who will come out and be trained to do their work and to do it even faster than we can. Help us understand in terms of the enormity of the challenge that um, organizations like Wycliffe are facing when we talk about um, the translation process of God's Word into a local minority or people group's language. Do you have any idea, Andy, just how many languages, how many people groups have yet to receive a copy of God's Word in their own language? Well, there are currently over 2,500 languages in the process of translation, and yet out of the world's just over 7,000 languages, we still have identified 2,400 that still need to be studied. And Wycliffe's goal, along with many other organizations who have gotten in, come into the picture in the last um, 10 years, have set the goal of starting each of these languages by 2025. And that, of course, is an enormous goal when we talk about, as you say, upwards of 2,000 languages that have yet to be translated, or are some of which are still in process. And, and this notion of the importance of people being able to read God's Word in their own languages is critically important. You mentioned just before we came on the air today that you've just recently returned from Nigeria. I think of what is going on in that part of the world, uh, particularly with the onslaught of Islam coming in from the north. Uh, and that, of course, is true in, in many nations across the continent of Africa, but particularly troublesome for Nigeria. Uh, the onslaught of Islam is something that uh, that can best be targeted by the truth of God's Word. But, but what do you do when there are minority people groups that can't read the Bible, or if they come to Christ, have no means of, of getting involved in discipleship, and as Scripture tells us, studying to show one's self-approved if you don't have anything to study? And I guess therein lies the huge challenge. That's it. In fact, uh, the literacy rate in many of these places is uh, five, one to five percent. And in the case of Nigeria, you have uh, one fifth of the population of Africa. You have one fourth of all languages there. With uh, surveys that are currently going on, there are around five hundred languages in that country. And though over the last uh, 40 years, work has started in about 125. It looks now like um, there are still 250 languages that need translation, where the people are not bilingual enough to to use another language, and sometimes that language 
the trade language they use is the language that encourages people to become Islamic. Mm-hmm. So our our real hope is uh, to start uh, literacy development, uh, alphabet development, and to see the scriptures start to come into these languages. I know the uh, the goal recently has been to not just start individual projects, but to invite chiefs of these communities to send appropriate people, people who have a level of education where they can uh, continue to be trained and to learn to translate God's Word for themselves, and really the excitement around that. I know um, five languages were invited to a workshop that started at the beginning of this year. Twelve communities sent workers, and uh, over 35 languages have been started just in the last five years. So there's a real multiplication of efforts. There's a cooperation between different agencies. And this is not something that's just limited to the Christian community, but everyone in those communities, including those from an Islamic background, want something written in their own language, because to think that God speaks their language is one of the most exciting things in a person's life. Indeed so, and of course, one of the most effective outreach tools that we can have as well. And Andy, you mentioned about that that target date of 2025, and I I think even ahead of that, there's a sense of urgency. We speak of what's been going on um, in countries like Nigeria, Darfur, in the Sudan. We've seen that, of course, highlighted in international news, and so much of what is problematic in that part of the African continent has to do with the spread of Islam. And, and what's troublesome is that we're seeing huge numbers of new believers coming to Christ every single day. Uh, one of the fastest-growing churches, in fact, anywhere on planet Earth, uh, is located in, in Lagos, Nigeria. And uh, to watch people coming in by the droves, uh, accepting Jesus Christ, but now... They speak a minority language or read a minority language, not having access to God's word. This becomes problematic because there's no way to get them into a firm foundation. They can't get involved in in study programs unless it's in a group fellowship kind of a thing because they don't have access to God's word. And so we, we run the risk of these believers falling away as quickly as they come to Christ because there's no effective means by which they might be immersed in the study and application of God's Word. This is what makes the work of Wycliffe so critically important. And um, toward that end, Andy, you're going to be here in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, sharing with folks over the course of a number of days uh, a lot of not just the work that you have been doing personally uh, there on the continent of Africa, what's going on in Nigeria, but a, a glimpse into the urgency of this throughout, I understand, the entire 1040 window. Yes, Craig, uh, that, that is what we're here to do. I've, like I said, I've just come back from Africa about two weeks ago, specifically to help out in this effort to make the work of Wycliffe known to people the opportunity to take part in the excitement, the challenge, really, the challenge of going to these places and equipping local people to do the work and to see this challenge of reaching these communities by 2025. This is, this is our hope. So thanks for giving us the opportunity to share. And as you point out, in most of these countries, uh, it is a team effort as people are coming together, they're sending volunteers, they're dedicating themselves to assist those working in Bible translation. And that sense of team effort really expands beyond local communities. It expands beyond the work of the Wycliffe Bible translators to you and me. 
uh, to number one, learn of what God is doing, what the opportunities are, what the challenges are, and then what we can do to step up and fill the gap and, and partner with organizations like Wycliffe to make a difference. And as Andy mentioned, we are watching millions swept away into eternity without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wycliffe Associate Volunteers are aiding in that struggle to help stem that tide by helping Bible translators concentrate on the goal of a vision 2025 that can provide translations for people living throughout the 1040 window uh, to reach that goal. And it's an urgent goal in doing so. And our thanks to Andy Ring for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Andy, safe travels to you. And again, thanks so much for your time. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.